I think I just always naively assumed that you get sick, you go to your doctor, and they do everything they can to make you better. And they certainly won't disbelieve you and tell you that you're lying and making stuff up. And unfortunately, this is the point at which real life departs with all those wonderful medical shows about heroic doctors, you know, leaving no stone unturned. Medical error is purported to be the third leading cause of death in the US, killing a quarter of a million Americans annually. 23% of Europeans have been affected by medical error. Bad science embeds ME as medical harm globally, making millions missing. But less than 10% of medical errors are reported, because medical error is the secret many healthcare systems and governments work hard to hide. Wrong medication, wrong dose, amputate the wrong limb. I am Scott Simpson, host of Medical Error Interviews and I talk with patients and families, physicians and advocates about medical error. They share secrets, stories, and most importantly, solutions. Medical Error Interviews is brought to you by my online counseling service, remediescounseling.com, a safe space for people affected by medical error, chronic illnesses, and other life matters. A note of caution, some may be distressed or triggered by the medical experiences of guests. Hello, humanity. I'm Scott Simpson, host of Medical Error Interviews. Multiple award-winning author Marcus Sedgwick is best known for his popular fiction books, but his experiences with deeply entrenched medical gaslighting inspired his new book titled All in Your Head. What happens when your doctor doesn't believe you? Marcus describes how he got sick with flu-like symptoms, but they never went away. Marcus was thrown into a world he did not even know existed, a world where very sick people are disbelieved and often belittled by physicians, a world Marcus is also seeing unfold for the millions of long COVID patients around the world, where their physical symptoms are often dismissed as psychological, with long COVID, we are witnessing millions of people being medically traumatized by global gaslighting. Marcus and I discuss the immense pressure physicians are under from the government and insurance companies and why the medical system has been set up so that it is in the physician's best interest to say it's in your head rather than in your body. Hashtag follow the money. You can support the podcast by subscribing on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, and all of the major podcast platforms. You can also support the podcast by becoming a monthly patron. Premium patrons get access to video versions of the podcast interviews. Go to patreon.com slash medical error interviews to become a monthly patron of the podcast. And if you need support for your own experience with medical error and or living with complex chronic illnesses, you can book an online video counseling appointment with me through my website at remediescounseling.com. Now, here is my interview with Marcus Sedgwick and a word of warning as always that some folks may be triggered by Marcus's experiences with the healthcare systems. Thanks, Marcus. <clears throat> Uh, so, 
Where did you grow up and what was your childhood like? I grew up in the southeast of England in the county of Kent. Uh, for those who don't know the United Kingdom, this is almost as close as you can get to France without actually falling in the water. I was about six miles from the coast near the town of Canterbury, the, uni uh, the university and cathedral city of Canterbury. And my childhood um, is an interesting one because it's one of those ones, well, I think it's interesting. <laughs> it's one of those things looking back over the years that you reappraise your opinion of it because at the time I would have said, I had a great childhood, you know, I had a loving family um etc cetera, etc cetera. but in retrospect i realized that that was to completely ignore one entire half of my uh childhood experience namely school uh which was which was awful i went to one of those classic british boys schools uh in which bullying psychological and uh, physical were daily occurrences and so I've kind of, as I say, I've, I've, I've reappraised that I didn't quite have the golden rosy childhood that I, um, that I thought I had. And that also I began to realize later on, there were also some things with my own family that I've now come to recognize that, that have troubled me since. But I think often these things are so deeply embedded that it takes something like a chronic illness for many years to beat this stuff out of <laughs> to shatter the shells of understanding that you thought you had and to start seeing underneath them a bit and so some of those things also have started really only in the last two three years to to, to make me rethink a little bit quite the view i had of my childhood originally Okay, so uh, I know from taking a quick look at your biography that you're uh, a writer for um, adolescents and teenagers. Yeah, I mean, that's the, the core of my work. It's what I'm best known for. So I've been writing books or publishing books, I should say, for 20 years. I've published about 45 books with various different publishing houses in the United Kingdom, the United States and, and elsewhere. And the core of what I do is books for adolescents, although I really, I'm saying that in the mode of what my publisher would say, because I, as the writer, have always very strongly felt that my books are for anyone who wants to read them. I don't sit out thinking I'm going to write a book for a younger person. I just write books, some of them, because I also write novels that are clearly for adults and I've written nonfiction and, and various other things too. But I think this question of who a book is for is more a question for publishing houses, booksellers and, and, and uh, agents and so forth. Because really, I think there's a very interesting process that happens to us when we're adolescents. It's even if you have the very best teenage experience, it's pretty intense. And many of us didn't have the best teenage experience. This question of fiction for, for people of that age, I find endlessly fascinating because this is the point in life when, you know, you stop being a little kid and you're starting to find your way into this new body, you know, puberty hits and it's all strange and weird. And you start to really think about the two major subjects in life, by which I mean sex and death. And no adults will talk to you about them because, you know, it's all just taboo and embarrassing. We don't want to do it. And we were afraid of scaring the children. 
And yet I think many of us can still clearly remember what it was like to be in that phase as a teenager. And yet as a, the adult world, I think is so, I was gonna say so good, but it's so bad at patronizing teenagers. We, we forget what it was like to be one. We forget what we were interested in. We forget what we could cope with. We forget, you know, the complexity of our thought. And I think largely we do that as adults because for many of it, many of us, it was such a terrible, stressful time that the second we think we're an adult, we try and throw all that stuff uh, behind us and never look back. And unfortunately, or fortunately for me, I'm one of those people who feels a very strong connection to that age. And I think that's why, and this is true of many writers of books for young people, I've discovered over the years, you'll find that there maybe was some, you know, a single significant crisis event, or maybe a more chronic long-term series of events that has rooted a part of their psyche in that space and wants to keep returning to keep asking those same questions about sex and death mm. that we still don't like to talk about very much um whereas i think writing the books i've written that i would classify absolutely purely only as adult books is not about their um complexity or or any other matter it's really just about the simple question of if books for younger people are about the question what will my life be who will i be where will i go what will i become there's a whole other range of books that is looking back thinking where did it all go wrong <laughs> right i was anticipating you to say that the books uh, for for adults were geared more toward making meaning what is the meaning of life as opposed to what will i do with my life yeah, there's now I was that was my slightly flippant joke that um like uh, yeah, you know, looking back and how on earth did I get here? But yeah, I mean that is the thing where I think from both sides of a, a timeline you're you're looking at this question of meaning. And that is after all at the end of the day why we read literature to find some kind of meaning, to apply some kind of patterns to our own lives, which I have to say in parentheses, I think is actually quite dangerous. And it's only after 20 years of writing professionally that I've come to realize the danger of stories. And it sounds a bit paradoxical for a writer to talk about the danger of books, but I've really firmly come to believe this. And in the book that I'm working on about my experiences of, of quote unquote medical gaslighting, I come to the conclusion at the end of the book that we need to be aware of when we're telling ourselves stories about our own lives. And for those of us who are readers, it's very easy, you know, to read a great classic novel and or, you know, a modern, you know, story of some kind and extract the truth and try and bolt it onto our lives to make sense of them. And I think we need to be aware of that process because lives, after all, are not stories as much as we want to tell ourselves that they might be. Lives are series of events that occur to us <laughs> and it can be, I think, not always universally, but it can be dangerous if you find you have been telling yourself a story about your life. And to go back to what I said before, sometimes these stories are so deep and so fundamental that we have no idea we're doing them until perhaps something like a chronic illness comes along and beats you about the face and body until you submit and say, yes, I see it now. Yeah, fish don't see water. And I think we're all fish in water until we have an experience that jerks us out of that reality. And so we can actually see 
the reality. So you alluded to a couple of times here, teasing uh, about chronic illness and the book you wrote. So take us on that journey. When did you get sick and what was that experience like? Yeah, so that, you know, I'm sure you've come across this many times that some people are able to exactly pinpoint a moment of becoming ill and other people say, you know, it came on gradually and, you know, this was going wrong and I was I was doing this, that or the other and it, it fell apart bit by bit. And in my case, it's a bit of a mixture of the two because I can really literally pinpoint the moment when I got ill. But again, in retrospect, I see there were probably some warning signs before that. But the acute cause um, was I went to Asia. I was working in Malaysia and Thailand for a couple of weeks. And this was in January of 2014. And towards the end of the day, I got sick. Uh, you know, I was feeling tired. I had diarrhea and I, I, I made the long flight back. You know, it's a 14 hour flight or something back to the UK where I was living at the time. And, you know, just, I just wasn't getting any better. And then I started developing some other symptoms. I was sweating. I was, you know, I was aching and I, I kind of pushed on for another couple of days, kept working. I went down to a meeting in London. And on the way back, I was standing uh, on a tube train because it was too busy. And I was standing on the train and suddenly I just felt uh, something just kind of whack me over the back of the head and the shoulders. I was just suddenly hit with this enormous fatigue. I started sweating, um, you know, aching all over, aching joints, aching bones. And, and I, I got back home and, you know, clearly something wasn't right. And yet I still kept on pushing and we were due to go... Um, I say we, my wife and my daughter and I were due to go and visit my mother in North Wales, which is a four hour drive from where we were living in Cambridge uh, for the weekends. And so, you know, we pushed on with that and I drove there and halfway there, I kind of went down another level. And then a day or two later at my mother's house, I kind of went down yet another level. And that was really the point at which um, I kind of you know, ground to a halt. It was that in that moment that my legs stopped working properly. It was a very terrifying experience. I just suddenly seized up and I could barely walk. And yet I still then tried to push on for another couple of days before I gave in and went to the doctor. So I, I you know, I cancelled all the work appointments I had and I gave up and went to the doctor. And this is where uh, I kind of in retrospect, you know, I mean, who knows, maybe I made a mistake because my normal doctor was on maternity leave and there was uh, a locum or a medical student would be the term we would use in, in the UK, who was in her final year uh, at the University College um, Hospital in uh, Cambridge, the University of Cambridge Medical School. And they said, do you mind seeing a medical student? And I, I said, no, I have no problem with that. I don't have any prejudice about young people. Uh, but this may have been my mistake. I went in to see her and to start with, it was okay. You know, she ordered some very routine blood work, like the absolute basics and said, you know, we'll have the results in, I think it was 10 days, two weeks. And I went back two weeks later, still, you know, not getting any better of anything, feeling worse, um, still with constant diarrhea, aching, fever, earache, headache, the awful fatigue, all of that. And she said, well, we haven't found anything. I said, okay. And then she said to me, uh, these exact words, she said, what would you say if I told you this was all in your head? Now, at the time, I 
was so shocked by this that I, I really took a moment to reply because I tend to answer questions, if anything, too quickly. And I was so kind of, you know, set back by this remark. And actually, it's kind of almost one of those only moments in my life where I actually think I said what I wish I would have said in retrospect. You know, we all have that thing they call it in French, uh, l'esprit des escaliers, the wit of the staircase, where you only think of what you wish you'd said on the way out of the building, you know. And in this case, I said, you know, I thought for a second and I said, um, well, I'd say either you haven't done the right tests or the ones you're doing aren't good enough. And I was very proud of myself for saying this. But she did not like that one little bit. Uh, you know, to cut a long story short, because these stories tend to be very long, I then engaged on a series of uh, conflicts with her, I guess, of making new appointments. You know, I could only get a new appointment after two or three weeks. That was all I was allowed. And then I'd say, look, you know, this is not in my head. And if it is, tell me how and I'll go and fix it some other way. And, you know, why would it be in my head anyway? And uh, and meanwhile, trying to push her to do more tests. And eventually I asked to see a senior partner at the the doctor's office. And he told me I was a hypochondriac. And, you know, I, I, I do want to emphasize before we go through much more of this story, I have since seen some very sympathetic and helpful doctors, but I think my unfortunate case was that the first two I saw just put up this uh, wall in which they did not want to listen to anything I had to say. Yeah, it's uh, endemic within the, our medical systems, I'm pretty sure it's uh, throughout the world. It seems to be the medical culture. I definitely hear the egos of those first two doctors standing in the way of being open. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And as I say, I've spoken to much better people since, but, uh, you know, I wish so much that I knew then what I knew now about the reasons underneath why they might be saying these things. If, I, if I'd have had the experience that I've had over the last seven years to be able to say to her, on what possible grounds do you tell me that? <laughs> it's in my head, you know, how are you making that jump from, we don't know what's wrong with him to therefore it's psychosomatic. And if I'd have known that she has almost no argument whatsoever, I mean, probably no argument on any grounds, whether they be you know, scientific, medical, rational, and certainly not ethical to make that jump from, I don't know what's wrong with you to therefore you're either faking it or imagining it. Um, I would have been able to, you know, fight my corner with a little bit more um, coherence at that time, I guess. But at that moment, I was really shocked. I was terrified. I was sicker than I'd ever been before in my life. I had no idea what was going on. I assumed I had, you know, um, at this point very early on, like three, four weeks in, I assumed that I had just picked up some virus or bacterial infection in Asia, which clearly I had some infection of some kind. It was never found what it was, but I had all the symptoms of an infection. But because her pieces of paper didn't show a number that was outside of the normal, she was unable to listen to my uh, my story. Yeah, that defaulting to psychosomatic uh, seems to be a fatal flaw of the, the medical system. So here you are left with a psychosomatic diagnosis. 
but no closer to what's really going on with you. So I can imagine, you know, you're feeling very scared of, you know, not only is my body acting very dysfunctional, but now the medical system is acting very dysfunctional. So how did you find out what was going on? Yeah, it was messy and it was painful. And I, I, I like the way that you put the, the, for our listeners, you put air quotes around the word diagnosis there because I very rapidly came to reject this as, uh, as any kind of diagnosis. When my normal GP returned from maternity leave, I said she was much, much better. Um, she did say a couple of things, again, didn't trouble me, but again, in retrospect, I've come to know more about, which I'll, I'll mention in a minute, but um, she was much more caring. I mean, there's a word that's nice to bring into the conversation about you know, the medical business is the concept of care, the concept of do no harm. And I now know the harm that was done to me by the first two doctors treating me in this way. Because I think the thing that's really become clear, and I wasn't clear at the time, I was just in this state of shock and confusion, as well as being very, very ill. I think I just always naively assumed that you get sick, you go to your doctor, and they do everything they can to make you better. And they certainly won't disbelieve you and tell you that you're lying and making stuff up. And unfortunately, this is the point at which real life departs with all those wonderful medical shows about heroic doctors, you know, leaving no stone unturned until they've solved and found the extraordinarily rare illness that our patient is, uh, you know, our protagonist this week is suffering from. Yeah, instead, I just had this very messy process of slowly of fighting and fighting and fighting and you know, fighting to get them to send me to a tropical medicine specialist, even of which I then I went to see one at the university hospital who was fantastic. You know, she never once she just did her job and ran all the tests she could. Um, and I had various other investigations, but only because I fought, only because I pushed, only because I wouldn't take this. Um, and I said, well, I was about to say, I wouldn't take this diagnose, diagnosis of a you know, psychosomatic condition lying down. But I have a very open mind. And I was even open minded to that. You know? And I said to her, OK, if it's this is a mental health problem, tell me what it is and how we're going to fix it. And her answer to that was a kind of shrug and a little shake of the head <laughs> because she was suggesting to me that I was deeply um, traumatized by something and I was trying to point out to her that I was literally at that point in my life the happiest I had ever been life was literally my dream life at that moment until suddenly it got swept away so and it's also occurred to me recently that it's bizarre that for the for the psychosomatic camp for the those doctors in the psych camp if they really believe in what they're saying, if she really believed that I was sitting there with a psychosomatic illness, the last thing she should have done is told me. Because if they believe that we make each other worse by, you know, because there's all these biopsychosocial theories, you know, these are the ideas that we make each other ill with this disease by talking about it, by wallowing in it, by referencing it, you know, all this stuff which is. I can't even begin to tell you how infuriating that is. I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. When you're only in this mess because of the place that they have, you know, the bucket they, they have put you in in the first place. If she really believed that this was all in my head, what she should have said is, 
you know, sometimes we get infections, we don't know what they are, you've been abroad, you might be very fatigued, you may have been stressed before, it might take a year or more to get through this, but don't worry, you'll be fine, you'll get through it. Because that would have been the better psychological model for me to believe in. So it makes no sense to me that actually they then say, haha, this is all in your head and therefore traumatise you <laughs> if they believe in their story of the biopsychosocial model. And I said I was just going to mention um, my nice doctor who came back, who was much more caring and gave me much more time. And she listened to me. But again, she did come out with a couple of things that have given me pause for thought. And I, and I don't know what you think about this, but one thing she said, because she gave me the the what I call undiagnosis of ME-CFS. She didn't actually say ME, actually. She said either chronic fatigue syndrome or post-viral fatigue syndrome. And she said, I can give you this, it was interesting phrasing, she said, I can give you this diagnosis if you want. Oh, okay. <laughs> Meaning some people like to know what's wrong with them. And certainly I understood that. I would have liked to know what's wrong with me. At the time, I didn't realise that really CFS is no kind of diagnosis at all. But then she said to me, I don't mind giving you this diagnosis because I don't think you're the type to settle into it. And again, I was like, what are you talking about? Who are these people who settle into being ill and you know put their feet up and are happy about not being able to walk or get out of bed or go to work or have any kind of fulfillment in their life? And it was only much later, of course, that I started investigating all those senior medical officials in the UK and of course elsewhere, elsewhere who um, label us as malingerers, fakers and, and uh, all those kinds of things. And she also said to me, of course, you know, there is a type of person who gets chronic fatigue syndrome. And she, classic definition of a workaholic burning the candle both ends, highly anxious, stressed person, you know, high achiever, all of that stuff. And at the time, I think there was so much else going on that I didn't pay that much attention. And again, only in retrospect, having done a little bit of research into it, do I find the almost complete lack of justification for making a statement like that. Yeah, so she's essentially spouting the story, the narrative of what ME patients are like psychologically. Because I've interviewed so many people and had so many counseling clients who had that same experience, often that message gets internalized. So the patient then internalizes the gaslighting. They start gaslighting themselves. Oh, yeah, and uh, that's... Um... A very painful process and I, I certainly recognize that because as I said maybe I'm cursed with having too much of an open mind because I was very completely open to this idea that maybe it was a psychosomatic disorder I just had no idea why or what it would be and I got you know given six weeks of cognitive behavioral therapy which did nothing for the illness nor did it do anything for the way I was coping or not coping with being ill and being told that we don't know what's wrong with you. Oh, and you're probably making it up, by the way. Um, none of that made the slightest bit of difference. And I think the other thing that is also very important to talk about is the effect on our partners and our family. Because I think my wife then started internalizing that medical gaslighting too. You know, she didn't think for one minute, it, one minute that it was in my head. And yet we had conversations where things would start coming out and we see, well, actually, what we're talking about, this is psychosomatic, what we're talking about. And she was starting to believe, you know, really negative things about our relationship, that that was the cause of my illness. 
and so the you know the damage they don't just do to you they do to you know your husbands wives children family as well absolutely yeah. and you can even extend it to employers if the doctor doesn't support a physical um, but puts down a psychological diagnosis that can really impede any sort of work or disability related benefits. Yeah, it can have yeah. so many negative impacts on so many different levels and aspects of our lives. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And again, this was all stuff that I didn't know anything about. I didn't know. I mean, I should have known that <laughs> underneath it all probably is money money and that other thing that you touched on earlier professional pride you know the the unwillingness of a certain kind of doctor and i do emphasize a certain kind of doctor to say i don't know what's wrong and for that to be okay and it was only later that i started discovering you know i mean it's this is different from country to country but in countries like the the us and, and canada in different healthcare systems but even in the in the UK, and I don't know, perhaps not all your listeners may be aware that the UK has this thing called the NHS, the National Health Service, which is completely free healthcare for every single person who lives in the country. It was introduced in 1948, and it is a miracle of the modern world. And yet it gets a very bad reputation, and there are political reasons why that is and what it all comes down to. It, well, it comes down to two things, money and ideology. But despite its flaws, the NHS is still, you know, an extraordinary thing to exist. And so it didn't occur to me for one minute that actually the pressure on my doctor to make that diagnosis, quote unquote, lack of diagnosis of medically unexplained symptoms means that she could send me for six weeks of cognitive behavioral therapy, infinitely cheaper than me continually coming back and saying, I want a test for a thyroid disorder, I want a test for tropical infection, I want a test for, you know, whatever it might be, because any single one of those tests was going to be costing far more than an hour of that CBT therapist's time. And of course, these things get even more complicated when we start talking about insurance companies, health insurance companies, you know, the huge scandalous issues that are going on there with why it's much more in their interest to be able to say this is in your head than in your body, even though, you know, I don't know what you think about that, but I think these statements are almost meaningless anyway. The Absolutely. head body, you know, the mind body thing is just such a false avenue to go down, I think. Yeah. Um, so when you mentioned that uh, your doctor sent you for cognitive behavioral therapy, I think we should uh, tell the audience, uh, for folks who don't know, that the hallmark cardinal symptom of ME, which is myalgic encephalomyelitis, is a dysfunctional and often delayed response to exertion, physical exertion, and for some folks also cognitive exertion. And so under this rubric of it's all in your head, we're going to send you for CBT. Often patients, especially in the UK, are also sent for graded exercise therapy. Were you subjected to that torture? I wasn't, and I'm really very uh, lucky that I wasn't. Again, it's not something I was aware of the, at the time. I can't. I did think uh, when my better doctor came back, she talked about pacing, 
which uh, is the other thing that sometimes, which is just, you know, for the people who aren't familiar with that, it's just the notion that you stick to very strict amounts of energy expenditure, so you never you know, push yourself too far. The graded exercise therapy, you know, I've now seen all the horror stories about that. I know all the reasons why, you know, there was this one very flawed piece of research that's been debunked so many times now. And, uh, you know, this is a situation, as, as you know, that is now changing in the United States. I don't know what the picture is in Canada. In the United Kingdom, they're still pretty much clinging to this um, biopsychosocial model, although they have dispensed with just at the end of last year. I think they've now said they're going to stop uh, prescribing graded exercise therapy because it generally does, you know, no good or actually harms people. Um, and a few cases of people saying it helped them, but you know, who knows? So no, I wasn't fortunately for me um, subjected to that one. Yeah, I've heard that there has been pushback uh, against the graded exercise therapy for ME patients. And at the same time, I'm also seeing that small cabal of psychiatrists that have pushed uh, graded exercise therapy and CBT as treatment for ME so that they could sustain their egos, their reputations, their bank accounts. So I see them also pushing for long COVID patients who got sick with the virus, did not recover, same sort of MO as people with ME by the majority. And so yeah. I see them pushing that, that narrative on the long COVID pandemic folks. So in a much bigger scale, it's very frightening. Yeah, it is. And you know, I think this is the absolute key, key point here because I think it's, you know, for people who aren't aware of this, they have perhaps it's really hard to understand the level of dysfunction in medicine at the moment and the increasing divide between patients and doctors and this war that is being fought around ME, CFS, uh, because the entire validity of psychosomatic medicine, they basically set up the field of this is a disease that's all in your head and the repercussions both financially and in terms of um, people's reputations and careers and, and uh, incomes uh, are going to be mammoth. And as you rightly say, this is the absolute key thing because I started working on this book over three years ago. So long before the pandemic came along and you know, halfway through last year, I realized I had to rewrite the whole book again because I couldn't write this book without setting it within the framework of COVID. Because I don't know about you, but I, um, many of us, this is no great claim that I'm about to say, to those of us who became sick through a viral infection, which is probably what happened to me, it was immediately obvious that there was going to be an absolute deluge of people getting chronic, fatigued conditions, whatever we want to call them. And I said this, I wrote a blog post in March 2020, I wrote to six national newspapers in the States and the United Kingdom, couldn't get any of them interested in this story. It was perhaps too soon in March of last year. So I put it on my website, on my blog instead, uh, predicting that there would be this uh, wave of, of long COVID. I didn't call it that because we didn't have that name. And then as I say, this is no great piece of fortune telling it was entirely obvious to people like me who've been through this 
And of course, what that means is there will be many, many, many times the number of people who now go through this medical gaslighting of clearly having, and the fact that we know it's COVID, the fact that in, you know, in my case, we never found out what was wrong with me. And that's the case for many people with ME. Even the fact that people can say, yes, but I had COVID will not save them from their doctor turning around to them and saying, this is all in your head. Yeah, it. I characterize it as an embedded medical error. The medical error is embedded within the system. Yeah, yeah, you, absolutely. That's a really good way of putting it. And I think it's very hard to see the way out now. I mean, things, you know, things do change. Let's say in, in, in Britain, graded exercise therapy has been removed from the table. In the United States, they finally dispensed with the biopsychosocial model and they said, no, this is a physiological illness we're talking about with ME. But that's taken decades of fighting to get to that point. And before we finish, I just thought it might also be interesting to mention another thing that happened uh, that I had no idea about in the course of my illness. So which is that I now live in France. So five years ago, uh, I wasn't getting any better. And my wife and I owned a holiday home in France and my daughter went off to university. She's the youngest of our children. And we thought perhaps moving somewhere, pure air, very remote, very quiet lifestyle that we live up here on this mountain might help me get better. So we, we decamped and we moved to France. And we were going through all the kind of administrative things that you do when you move to a new place, and in this case, a new country. And one of them was to register with the doctor. So we went in one day and we met the doctor. And this might stun people for a start. Um, we were in the doctor's office for 50 minutes, the best part of an hour, just for him to welcome us to the community, find out about us, find out about our medical pasts. I mean, the comparison with what you might get in Britain or Canada or the United States was just so stark. And he's a lovely guy, my doctor. And anyway, in this first talk, he said, so is anything, do either of you have any particular health problems? And my wife and I kind of looked at each other because one of the things we decided when moving here was I would just try and accept being ill, stop talking about it so much, give up on having more tests, you know, being kind of through everything we could think of trying. And we hesitated and he saw us hesitating and he said, is there something? And I said, well, yes, I have. Um... And then I thought, well, I don't know the French for this. So I said, I have ME. And I, you know, I, he said, what? And I tried a kind of literal trans translation of, of the words, myalgic encephalomyelitis, and he shook his head. And then I said, uh, syndrome de la fatigue chronique, and he shook his head. And this went on for a couple of minutes and I explained and he said, but there is no such disease. And this was this extraordinary moment <laughs> to cut another long story, uh, long story short, that ME does not officially exist in France. Now, that isn't to say that there aren't people who are suffering from it. Uh, and the, the, miss, um, the Millions Missing campaign, which you will be familiar with, Scott, and which some of your listeners will be, is a online support group and uh, of activists who are trying to promote awareness for ME globally in various countries and there's a big group of them in France too but officially ME does not exist uh, in this country now this is very interesting you take the same illness around different countries and you get told it's a different thing or even I moved to France and told it doesn't even exist 
And this really shatters your perception that if you ever suffered, as I did, naively from the perception that when you go to your doctor, you get the best medical knowledge that is known globally in the world at that moment. I'm afraid that's far from the truth. What you get is what that health system has decided is the most effective and perhaps the cheapest way of operating a medical um, care system. There were some strange upsides to being told that ME didn't exist because my doctor just looked at me and he said, you know, you're uh, only 47 years old or whatever I was at the time, you should be able to walk up a mountain. And he started a whole bunch of other tests. So I went then through another kind of two year process of him trying everything that he thought had been missed. We still came round after that two years. Um, and he said, well, I've tried everything I can think of. I therefore conclude that it's, and he said, psychogenic, i.e. psychosomatic. So he'd come to the same conclusion. He tried much harder. He was much nicer about it. There was much more care behind it. And yet ultimately he still came to this conclusion of saying, I don't know what's wrong with you. Therefore it's in your head. Yeah, it, it still shocks me, even though I hear these stories, you know, every day, it, it's still <laughs> shocking that our medical systems could be so blind um, to such a significant number of people. We're not talking a rare disease that only impacts, you know, less than 100 worldwide. We're talking millions of people that are institutionally yeah. gaslighted worldwide in one way or another. No, absolutely. And um, it's, you know, I'm sure you recognize what I'm about to say. It's been a very hard process, not just being ill. It's the extra burden of being ill and having to fight your own way through it and not be believed. And, you know, even when you can see that there are members of your family or friends who look at you and think, you know, and I've had some very explicit conversations with people who have ME being told, you know, literally family members saying to them, this is in your head. That is the burden that is, you know, particularly hard to bear. And as we've said, you know, I think a, a large part of that comes down to money, because if suddenly we had to take all these people seriously, healthcare systems worldwide would probably collapse. Governments aren't ready to spend the money on this. And this would be why we're at this absolute watershed moment. What happens with COVID and long COVID patients, this could be the thing that makes or breaks uh, all of this. And, you know, I hope there may be some very painful shatterings of things that have to occur to get to a better place. Whether those of us who have ME will benefit from an enhanced understanding of what's happening to us, whether COVID will get long COVID patients will get taken seriously, whether they get swept under the carpet too. Um, we're in an absolute critical point now, I think. I concur. Yeah, there's uh, an inflection point going on, and I'm not sure which way it's going to go. I'm hoping, um, like you intimate, that there's a rupture of some sort and that we, in repairing this rupture, we can build a stronger, more equitable healthcare system. Um, but you alluded to the book you're writing on that you had to start rewriting when the pandemic hit, but I don't think we named the title of the book and any details when it's coming out. Yeah, so the book um, is called All In Your Head, um, begin with deep irony, because those are the four words that set me off down a whole other journey that I wasn't, I didn't even know this world existed. 
I didn't want to come here. I was thrown into it and I was largely thrown into it by those four words all in your head. Um, the book is with my agent now after rewrite number seven. I think it is. It's a book that I could, I keep adding to constantly because, um, you know, this stuff just keeps changing continually. But my agent will be going out with it soon. So we don't have a publisher yet. I'm hopeful that she will find somebody uh, and uh, we'll get there. I can see that it's going to be a tough sell because who wants to read a book about a bunch of sick people? But this story, as you said, this is already not a story that's like a minor illness that happens to 100 people worldwide. This is already happening to millions of people worldwide. But now every single person, it's going to happen to a friend of theirs. It's going to happen to somebody in their family. It might even happen to them that they are told that this chronic illness that they are suffering from is psychological and that's why I think this book is really really important um, so my fingers are crossed and yeah on my website there will be details uh, as and when we get anywhere with it and where can people connect with you on social media and your website yeah so my website is marcussedgwick.com I'm at Marcus Sedgwick on Twitter uh, my Instagram page is largely pictures of snowy mountains, so don't bother going there unless you want pictures of snowy mountains. <laughs> but if you want some some beauty to look at, then that's there. Uh, and on my website, there's a, a link on the homepage to All In Your Head. So I'm developing a whole subsection of the site now about the progress on the book. And I'm also, like you, developing um, a mini podcast series to go with the book when it launches. So I'm in the middle of concluding interviews and edits for that. Um, so all that information will be there. And I'd love to hear from anyone who has stories or things they want to contribute to this debate because um, it's not going anywhere. I'll include links in the show notes so people can easily access those. So so final question for you, Marcus. It sounds like you're, yeah. you're really keeping busy and you're having to manage the symptoms of ME. How is your health now and what's working for you? Yeah, um, I, I, I don't know about you. I think you've sort of alluded briefly in our conversations before we spoke today that you go up and down and I, I go up and down a lot. So I'm not great at the moment, but I've just, I'm sort of coming out of a really bad patch where I was basically in bed constantly. And by constantly, I would say about 80% of the time. Um, on average, I'm in bed about 25% of, of my waking time or on the sofa, or sitting, one of the biggest things I have is I still have this huge problem with standing in my legs. Uh, so I can only stand for about two minutes, three on a good day. And yeah, I still, I do try and keep working even if it means working on the laptop in bed um, because I, I do get some cognitive impairment but I'm aware that it's nowhere near as bad as some people's is with ME. But at the start, the, here we are at the end of 45 minutes speaking, I can feel I'm starting to lose it a bit. So it's probably a good idea that we're winding up. But, you know, the, the balance of keeping on trying to do the things that make your life fulfilled against, you know, pacing out that little energy that you have is a really difficult one. And I found it very hard to negotiate um, and yet you know I'm still aware that generally speaking I fall into what is technically called the moderate category I have spells where I get into the mild category of ME uh, last summer I was doing much better and then over this winter I've been uh, spells where I'm in what would technically be called the severe category so it, it comes and goes 
I found almost nothing that helps, um, sadly. I know some people manage to find some relief with some things. I'm seeing a reflexologist every fortnight. That gives me like a day or two where the, everything just eases off about five or 10%. Um, and I, I'm not the only person who I've spoken to has found that reflexology helps because it's working directly on the nervous system, calming things down. And I think that is what is um, helping me there. But again, it's more about taking the edge off the symptoms than actually fixing anything uh, deep down, at least so far. Um, and otherwise, I just have to watch myself and you know make myself stay in bed on the days where I need to. Yeah, it is a huge adjustment uh, having to deal with chronic illness that fluctuates so much in our energy levels. Uh, I would just note for folks who are listening that even though uh, you may be sort of moderately ill most of the time, that that moderate term is a vast understatement. If you can only stand for two to three minutes a day, I don't know what yeah. in, in what book that's moderately ill. Yeah, no, I mean, you're right. And I think this is it, it's so hard. Uh, you know, here I am, I'm a writer, I'm supposed to be able to articulate things and express feelings. And yet, I have struggled from day one to really express how it feels. Even this word we use, fatigue, we don't have precise words for illness. There's an amazing essay, if you've ever read it, um, if you've never read it, by Virginia Woolf, she wrote in 1926 or seven, I think, called On Being Ill. It's a fantastic essay she wrote. And in it, she says, we don't have the vocabulary for illness. We have all the words you like for love and beauty and warfare and you name it. We don't have accurate words for illness. So even this word fatigue, you know, some people prefer the term malaise, but you know, nothing describes this absolutely awful feeling of I will never be able to move again is how it feels because you know when you're healthy and you get tired it's you know you know you'll go to sleep and you'll wake up refreshed you know you you know you you ran too far I used to be a you know a middle distance runner you know it's actually quite a pleasurable feeling feeling those aching muscles knowing that by tomorrow you'll be moving well and this thing that you now know nothing you can do apart from long long rest which might drip feed a modicum of energy back into you it's almost indescribable it, yeah that, I, that's right it is almost indescribable um and my heart goes out to you i was a triathlete before i got sick so i totally right. miss and running was my favorite of the sport so i totally missed the therapy of, of running yeah thanks marcus for your time um, and uh, rest hard for the rest of the day. I oh, will. Thank you, Scott. Uh, really appreciate being invited, and I really appreciate the work you're doing. It's really important. So thanks for having me. Great. Thank you, Marcus. Well, a big thank you to Marcus for sharing his experiences with the medical system, and I really look forward to reading his book, All in Your Head, What Happens When Your Doctor Doesn't Believe You, when it comes out soon. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Be kind to yourself, be kind to others. You can support the podcast by subscribing on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, and all of the major podcast platforms. You can also support the podcast by becoming a monthly patron. Premium patrons get access to video versions of the podcast interviews. Go to patreon.com 
slash medical error interviews to become a monthly patron of the podcast. And if you need support for your own experience with medical error and or living with complex chronic illnesses, you can book an online video counseling appointment with me through my website at remediescounseling.com.